Hello, everybody, and welcome to Play Crush. This is Joe Murphy, and this is episode one. I'm so excited to welcome everyone to this brand new podcast where you'll hear brilliant guests talk about brilliant plays. Whether you're joining us through the Old Vic or the Sherman, or if you are just a massive play geek like me and uh, stumbled upon this, then thanks so much for your support. Theatres like ours need you now more than ever. If you enjoy this podcast and felt like you wanted to make a donation to us, it would be an invaluable contribution in allowing us to keep creating great theatre experiences for the people of Cardiff, London and beyond. You can visit the Sherman or Old Vic websites to support us today. Thank you so much in advance. It really means the world to us. So team, I am very excited about this show and I'm very excited about episode one because George Mackay is basically the dreamiest first guest in all of podcast history. Old Vic audiences will know George from his incredible performance in The Caretaker back in 2018. And just about everybody else on the planet will know him from the smash hit film 1917. You may also have caught him in films like Sunshine on Leith or Pride or Hunky Dory or Captain Fantastic to name but a few. George is an incredibly talented actor and also happens to be pretty much the nicest, most insightful and open person you could hope to meet. Which is lucky, because I needed all the nice I could get. This being not only the first episode of Play Crush, but also my first podcast recording ever. I bumbled my way through and thankfully George was amazing and we had a really great time chatting. His Play Crush was in fact The Caretaker by Harold Pinter, an extraordinary play that changed the face of modern theatre. It premiered at the Arts Theatre Club in London's West End on the 27th of April 1960 and was Pinter's first big hit. Disturbed handyman Aston has invited an irascible tramp to stay with him at his brother's jumbled London flat. At first, it seems that the manipulative guest will take advantage of his vulnerable host. But when Aston's brother Mick arrives, an enigmatic power struggle emerges between the three men that is in equal parts menacing, touching and darkly comic. That power struggle seems to form the heart of the play. In his book, The Life and Work of Harold Pinter, Michael Billington said, power is the theme, dominate or be dominated. Pinter shows, Billington continued, that life is a series of negotiations for advantage in which everything comes into play. Indeed, in The Caretaker, this often seems to be the case. Now, before we get started, I just want to also pay homage to the amazing Movie Crush podcast with Chuck Bryant, which was the inspiration for Play Crush. It's an amazing podcast, and if you're a movie fan, then get subscribing now. So, without any further ado, here we go with George Mackay and The Caretaker. Okay, uh, hello everybody. Welcome to Play Crush episode one. Uh, pretty excited here today to be in the studio with George Mackay. Hello, George. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks, man. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. All good. I uh, I say studio. Uh, I mean the spare room in my house. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Whereabouts are you? Yeah, likewise. Likewise, I'm 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 with my family at the minute, but so so I'm nestled away um, in oh, our official nice. studio. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm currently uh, looking at quite a lot of spare bedroom mess, but I like to pretend it's a pretty official studio recording space. Yeah, well, I've got like a sort of quite good office desk. Well, I've actually. Now I think about it, this is very apt. I'm like my dad used to be a stage manager, and he's got he used to work on a lot of musicals. And because it's sort of like an an officey room, he's got framed Cats, Little Shop of Horrors, Fedra, like actually, which was at the Old Vic. So there's there's the first link, which I hadn't even thought until looking up at them. But he's got his own his old musical posters up here. Mate, you, you couldn't be sitting in a better room. You're like surrounded by theatre and plays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah, basically. It's just kind of, it's that the whole house is a set. Just anything, whatever I'm doing today, I'll make the room applicable. <laughs> I love it, man. The natural instincts of an actor. <laughs> yeah, just go message with everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's why you're top of your game, mate. Yeah, just like surrounded with oats. <laughs> I like it. I like a man who takes his job seriously. I respect that. Um, wicked. Well, so yeah, this is Play Crush, guys. So it's basically brilliant people uh, talking about brilliant plays. George is our first brilliant person, which is very exciting. Um, as we say, we're in these slightly odd, uh, isolated experience right now. How, how have you been finding the last few weeks, George? How's it been going? It's, it's been all right, thank you. As I, as I say, I'm, I'm with my family, so like we're blessed with company for for a start and and everyone's getting on 
Um, so that's all good. And yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I'm lucky with you know we've got a garden and so we've got space um, to you know to be outside even when there was you know the rules were stricter about um, you know your hour a day and everything. So you know we've got a, a very good version of what um, what this lockdown is. But it's still it's strange. I think it's everyone has their you know the ups and down days and kind of almost tuning in and out of the news or sometimes being really on top of it and then kind of choosing to be a bit unaware whether that's the right or wrong thing to do and and so yeah it's kind of I don't know it's it's flowed it's kind of gone ups and downs throughout but but broadly it's been good it's like it's lovely to spend time with you know with the people that often I don't get to spend much time with um and uh yeah it's it's I mean it's massive it's like it's a sort of huge seismic happening that's going on um but it's sort of funny when you're sort of in the middle of just the day-to-day of it um so yeah so it's been a lot of things but broadly it's been all good what what have you been doing to like keep yourself up like what's been enjoyable what's been the fun stuff you've been doing what's given you energy well i mean what i've been doing is uh i guess to be to be honest there's i've been blessed at the minute with you know read reading a few more projects and and everything um so just kind of looking ahead for the work the other the other side of this time um and then i, I was just in rehearsals for a, um, a film called wolf just before, um, just before the lockdown happened. Um, and it's about a young man who feels inside that he is a wolf. And there's some kind of physical work to do to do with kind of portraying this character. So I've just been trying to keep on top of that and, and using this time to just mine character, you know, like all the, all the stuff like character diaries, um, just working out his history, going through the script. Been, I've been in conversation with the director over this time. So ticking over with that and then... And then as well, there's been a few kind of personal projects that, or ideas that I've had for for things which I've usually kind of <laughs> kind of claimed that I, you know, there's, there's not enough time, or there's never, you know, there's never open space to to actually kind of put pen to paper and and try and get some of these thoughts down. And we've had a lot of time, so so I've kind of been beavering away at a couple of things which I've been thinking about or, or playing with for the last wee while. Oh man, how exciting. That's what a brilliant way to use the time to like start generating your own material. That's amazing. And so is that prep, is that like part of your process? Are you a big prepper as an actor? Do you like to have that stuff done a lot in advance? Um, or does it change from like stage to film? Yeah, I think I think I'm learning more and more that of not to sort of over over prepare the bit that you're gonna do, as in like not sort of absolutely go over or like not sort of yeah not not over prepare the bit that is going to be on stage or the bit that's going to be on screen but to do loads of work on figuring out who that person is before they got to the moment that you're then going to be doing in front of other people um because that way it keeps it open to you know to what the your scene partner's giving giving you but it also you, it, I don't know, but then you're just reacting as that person and you have a stronger sense, which in a way I kind of always thought, used to think, okay, it's just about that moment. So, you know, we've got to nail the moment that's there. But it's, yeah, it's it's more about just just reacting, but, but having done a huge, like a lot of backstory, basically, and knowing who this person is so that you react as that character and you know why they react and not just in the, the actual expression, like, a character might laugh differently to you do, or they might raise their voice in a different pitch to yours, but also the things that would annoy them. Like there's things which is, you know, water for ducks back to me, which someone else is really hurtful and, and vice versa. And, and it's the same thing with the character, like what, what pushes their buttons. And, um, and so, yeah. And I think that's just from either depending on who you're playing, either building that for yourself or, or going into the history books or whatever's required to, to figure, you know, to figure that out. So, so that process is a sort of like figuring out like who they are, but not how you're going to do it sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's a mix. There's a little bit of, I get really excited about the idea of like, I, I you know, how you're going to do something um, that, you know, the, the prospect of when you, yeah, when you get like the whiff of like, oh yeah, this could be, this is, this could, this, this has the potential to be that kind of scene or there's something that I want to sort of express in. And this feels like this is the grounds to do it. But, but by the same token, I'm, yeah, I'm learning the more I do it that to have a preconceived idea of what you're going to do, unless you happen to be bang on with that preconceived idea, can sometimes encumber your ability to shift and change 
when someone offers you something different or your director has a different interpretation. And to get out of those rhythms that you've set yourself because you want to get them so perfect can be tricky um, if you've committed too much of that too early on. Yeah, I mean, that also strikes me as there's, there's a sort of courage or confidence issue in there as well, right? Like the idea of to leave some of it open, to leave some of it unknown, to be open and responsive on the day and not feel the need to know exactly what you're going to do at every moment. Uh, yeah, that I feels th- like a thing that maybe comes with experience and a bit of confidence. I, I think so. But I think it's it's also that that research beforehand gives me confidence, like that thing of, oh, God, you know, you always have that feeling of I, re- I don't know what I'm going to do here. I don't know what's going to do. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but if you but if you kind of go, if I if I don't know my lines and someone said something to me, I'd know how to react as that character. And, and then hopefully then you've got to learn your lines as well but like but it's you know the simple stuff but but there's that thing of that gives me a confidence to be a bit like I don't know I, I want to predict the situation but I can't uh, and I don't know what the what's you know the direction the director's interpretation is going to be I don't know what this the scene partner is going to give me I don't know how we're going to stage it but I know how I would be wherever I'm told to go. So if I'm, so therefore you can be a bit of both rather than kind of make it all about you. If you're, if your director says, you know, walk down stage and, uh, you know, and sit down in that chair, you kind of, it's not like, oh God, I don't know why I would do that. You can kind of go, okay, I'm not sure exactly why I'm doing that yet, but I know how to do it. And that just gives you the confidence to be open. If you, if you, if you know, if you know the sort of, yeah, if you know how you'll do something, but you don't know necessarily what you're going to do. Yeah, man. Well, I think that like reads in your performances completely. I think it always seems so alive and open on stage in a way that feels really electric and quite dangerous. Um, uh, and the same in your film work. Like, I think that's part of what audiences really respond to in you. And it's really interesting to hear there's like a process behind that. And is that, is that, have you figured that out over your career? Is it a recent thing? Is it something you've had from the beginning? And was there, was there like a watershed moment that's changed how you approach roles? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a mixture of stuff. It's been a mixture of, of experiences and um, watching, you know, either being asked to do different things by directors or by a circumstance um, or watching other actors and either talking to them or just observing them and giving it a go or, you know, and also doing the opposite of, um, of kind of, of preparing, you know, perhaps too much, too heavy on one, on one side and then, <laughs> uh, you know and then and then and then it's and then and then it not being that and then being like oh shit <laughs> like or <laughs> you know or or you know it's, it's yeah it's just experience i guess is it, it and and kind of yeah it's, it's it's i think it's experience you just pick them up but i tell you like genuinely and i know this is a play that we thought we'd, we'd talk about but the caretaker was such a lesson in that because i was so terrified of so and sort of excited and honoured, but genuinely so nervous about being part of that play and working with Danny and Tim and Matthew and you know on the old Vic, old Vic stage and things that I thought. And I, when I read the script, I go, God, this he's got a lot of words. They, everyone's got a lot of words. And the, the character <laughs> I was playing, so I thought I'm just gonna I'm gonna learn the words. I'm gonna learn the words because that's my biggest fear. And I'm already shitting it. So when I walk into the rehearsal room. <laughs> If I can know my lines, I'll be more confident and I'll be better prepared and I'll be loose in them. But I realized in a sense, I'd been so about learning the words, I'd learned them in a rhythm. And I and it and it really it took a bit of and I think part of those rhythms stuck because part of that instinct was 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 right. And then I've, there was a good part of it as well where I had had to really work hard at jogging out those rhythms because it wasn't helpful to the process because I decided what I was gonna do to alleviate fear and was and was stuck in that <laughs> rhythm and it wasn't helpful and to, to play with other people because they would be like you know I'll offer you a forehand I was like I can only do backhand they're like I'll offer you a backhand I can only do backhand like, I'll offer you a volley I can only do backhand <laughs> like that sort of <laughs> you know and and then and then that fear is like you kind of go I wish I was scared because now I just feel rubbish that I can't change what I'm doing and it, it just took a bit of shaking up to like but but that's that was that was part of that one of those things where you that was that was a real lesson it was a real kind of turning point in that 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 yeah it's it's about it's about playing and it's about shifting and it's about also kind of it but it's I've not I've not done a huge amount of theatre but like it's 
it's amazing that thing of previews where you kind of go with the first preview you go right we've got the finished show we've got the finished show and then you come back in and you go okay judging by the audience reaction this this bit held this bit didn't we need to eke out this and that bit didn't quite work so we're going to change it and get and that it's a fluid process it's like an exchange it's um and that that takes you being flexible and stuff so it's kind of it's really important to know certain things and to be fit in certain things, but not to be, you know, not to be regimented. Yeah. It's like, it sounds like you're sort of saying be match fit, um, but don't try and predict the game a bit on that one, which. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like, yeah, it's like a game of tennis or something. Like if you're really fit and you're strong and everything, you can cut, you can run wherever the ball goes. But if you're, you know, if you've gone, like I'm going to hit a four, yeah, I'm going to hit a forehand and I'm going to go to the left-hand side of the court and then I'm going to go to the net. It's just like, unless that person gives that back to you, bang on, it's going to, it's, it's going to jar. <laughs> you know, you're not, you won't be playing the game. Um, yeah, you just keep losing points. You don't understand yeah, why. Yeah, but it's I'm like, over but here, I'm, guys. Yeah, but, I, but also in your head, you're like, I've worked out a perfect rally. Like this is why, <laughs> why you're not hitting it back to my perfect rally. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you guys <laughs> yeah, come uh, on, I want to win Wimbledon <laughs> yeah it's like obvious and so in, in that production with you the old Vic obviously was uh, the brilliant Timothy Spall and the amazing Dan Mays mm. and um, with I mean was working with them part of that process then uh, were they uh, like alive open actors that you felt like you wanted to engage with and, and part of what they were bringing is what started to change your mind a bit about your preparation yeah yeah it's it's like i'm i'm reticent to talk about others sort of without because i can't fully understand it. i can only sort of see the brilliance of what they give but reticent to talk too much about other actors processes without knowing fully what they are but it struck me that that it it mattered a huge amount to tim that he knew the sense that was underneath the lines and and that was part of the kind of the, the learning and making process where i was almost a bit like i'm gonna learn the lines and then i'm gonna insert the meaning so it was kind of just like an opposite way of working in, in, in a sense. And that's, it's, it's kind of, it, that, that, yeah, and, and my way, I think, just, just jarred a bit, like for, for myself. Um, and, and it's difficult when you're sort of, you've got quite a clear first, and for me, I was giving quite a clear first offering, but it wasn't, it, but again, it was something that was sort of outside of that, moment and I say, I say that I'd like I'd done a lot of homework on what my offering would be but it's still you know it was it was rigid um and it was just that thing of watching I guess that a confidence in themselves and a, and, a, and a trust in that that it was a, that it was a built process that it it was okay not to have it that, that the point of that rehearsal room is to discover it rather than to know it and to kind of just assemble it you know like a piece of furniture or something um so um yeah yeah I, I think I, I took a lot from 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 Tim in that way that he he had to know what he was saying before he so what what he the, the truth that was underneath the line the subtext before he said the words or, or or learnt the words because or at least in the instance that we work together and that's also because people don't often say what they think and and good writing often you might have a completely and especially Pinter there's so the beauty of it is it's like a blank canvas where it's what the saying is almost nonsensical and it requires a deep understanding of what that person's experience is when making like your version of the character because they're, they're absolutely not talking about two beds and you know <laughs> housing schemes or or, or 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 like furniture it's about it's about something completely different and in the same way that we talk about you know, we like humans so often talk sideways. It's very odd, not odd, but it's rare that you have a completely direct conversation with someone, you know, it's, it's, um, and that's, that's what I love. I love subtext. I love, no, I, I, there's a, also, there's probably a bit of a smug satisfaction in kind of in the doing of it where you're like, I know what this person's actually saying, but, but the character's talking about the weather and it's really enjoy like enjoyable to know and feel something and say something completely else different on top you know at least as a character yeah definitely and i i mean that yeah as you say that's such a pinter thing isn't it he has this amazing quote that he said so often uh, below the word spoken is the thing known and unspoken oh, which great. sounds exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah and it was that was that was the joy of like as, as i said the those um 
of working out who this who this who Mick was, you know, Mick, my character in the play, and um, and just deciding because it's there, there wasn't many clear um, uh, what's the sort of miles not milestones but things like if the words were a roadmap there's there's so much that is it's, it's quite rare that you pick upon like a literal one like maybe some of the bus routes that he lists where he's he's got these big old monologues where, where he comes on these spiels of basically all the information he knows to kind of wrong foot and intimidate Davies to um, Timothy Spool's character in the production that we did and actually if you were to kind of try and pick those apart they're so random that it, it they're, 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 like you'd kind of they're, they're not real. That's the point is that they're real and they're, they, they are and they aren't. That's, it's, it's so confusing. And that's what he's trying to do is confuse. And he's probably picking, he's saying that he, one person might have been someone that he knew at school, but at school, but now he's calling him his uncle, but he's only calling him his uncle because he's can, he can use that sort of relationship to mess around with, with Davies. It was just like, it was just a joy to kind of build the sense of him and then almost cherry pick some of the things to be a bit like, Oh, that's what, that's what that, like that's who this character is to him, and and, and then also to I remember even like, but in knowing the as you say like like bits of the research that rehearsal process, there's there's huge chunks of the play where Mick's not on stage, and so there's chunks where I wasn't in the rehearsal room, and I was like I just want to rehearse because I'm so nervous, I just want to <laughs> I just want to practice, but I used but I went and there's a bit where he lists all these bus routes in East London. And I just went and did all the bus routes. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just went to like, I took the 38 and the 581 and the 30 and the 30A. Oh, and they were like, oh my God, I can see St. Paul's Church on the corner of Essex Road. Okay, right. I know this now. And it was really useful to have an image in my head. And I, and I went to the market in Finsbury Park and then I went to the Nags Head and I was like, there's just all this stuff around London. And I was like, oh, actually this is like, okay, this is, this is where his world was. And this is where like Harold Pinter's world is in East London as well. Like, okay, this is cool. And then you sort of to go, and then Matthew said this great thing, Matthew, our director, um, where he was like, you know, where they would, if this is, I can't remember, if this is 50s or 60s London, and these men are in there, or Mix in his 20s, um, he would have been a child of of the war. Like he would have been playing on bomb sites. Like the Blitz, like Limehouse was absolute docks and stuff like absolutely flattened. So he would have been playing on rubble. So like, you know, his sort of, his, what his London would have looked like, what's kind of, what's rough to him compared to what's rough to me, like all that kind of stuff. And, and his sort of aspirations of a home are so like, are even bigger when he's been raised in, rubble you know like it's there's so much I don't know it was just so much it's, I guess it goes back to kind of doing that research and to just so you can cherry pick what's what's applicable because you'll be surprised when you sort of do all that backstory stuff like a lot of it might not be relevant but the, the, it's so clear when something pings through when another character says something or a line that you've forgotten before suddenly makes a whole different kind of sense when you when you know you know, when you know what it means to that person. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was really clear in your performance. In You know, I was lucky enough to see it at the Old Vic. And it was really clear that the Mick we were meeting was a sort of iceberg, right? And we were just seeing the tips of what this guy was and that there was all of this stuff kind of cooking underneath him. And it's kind of interesting, I suppose, particularly about what you're talking about, about the rubble, because, of course, you know, Pinto was a child of the war and he played mm. in rubble. You know, he was here during the Blitz. He was in London. Um you know, his playground was, as you say, bomb sites. And so it's really interesting that you found that then came through in your character as well. Um, Because there's a few autobiographical elements of the caretaker, it feels like, Mm. like, did you know, he, you know, he used to live in a flat and and his landlord was a builder upstairs with a brother who'd had electric shock therapy and who brought a tramp home one night, well, a homeless person home one night. Wow, I, um, I, I didn't know it was that literal. I knew that he lived in Chiswick, and I was like, "Great!" I grew, I was born in Turnham Green, so I was like, "Yeah, this is this is perfect." But like, but <laughs> it, um, yeah, I did. Well, I didn't know it was that that literal. I think I, I think I knew that he, yeah, there was a boarding house in 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 Chiswick and then or West London, and then he um, um, there was a sort of funny that his is is the person above him. You know, it was a kind of almost mysterious, like you know, they'd sort of come in and out at odd times, and it that intrigue was, you know, what led him to a sort of imagine what, he, what that might've been, but that's brilliant that it's so literal. 
Yeah, know. I mean, I think, you know, the characters and the the situations are all invented, but that image, as you say, of this secretive builder upstairs mm. um, and the comings and the goings of it. And um, his, uh, his first wife, uh, Vivian Merchant, who was living within the flat, got really angry because she felt the play was like an attack on that nice builder who lived upstairs. <laughs> really? They had, like, they had like a little falling out about it. Really? <laughs> an attack, <laughs> yeah. She felt like she'd really be- they'd really betrayed him with his betrayal. <laughs> Um, wow. But Pinter, I think Pinter, Pinter always felt that um, he was Mick was the most made up, though, in terms of like internal stuff. You know, like he wasn't he wasn't a portrait of that builder in any way. It was, as you say, it was just that interesting, intriguing image that Pinter kind of hooked onto. Yeah, um, I, I, and I, I read um, like I, I reread the play, um, you know, before before we we're, we're speaking now, and it's it was so great to read it again because I think some of the time it's like. He's just his writing. It's just a framework for drama, and it's sort of in some ways the characters. It's, 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 he's he's so bloody clever because in some ways they're they're so they're so rich and they're so deep, but they're also kind of not there. You've just got a framework that is down to you to fill with whatever interpretation that you have. Like it's just it became so much so clear again to see the the way that his writing just is is is, is like the rhythm of it the um the structure is like it's kind of musical and then like uh it's quite, quite percussive but it's just it's almost like a joke like da-dun, 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 da-dun. Da-dun. Yeah, and it's like yeah. that kind of like it's like the blues or something where it's like you know there's there's the three chords and they go around and you change in this and it just works there's a lot of actors who work with him as a director saying he'd note you by listening to your music he wouldn't really, really? ask anything else he'd just be like that's not the right way. Uh, and one actor once asked him about what, like, what's the origins of their character? And he sort of quite famously replied, mind your own fucking business. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I think it's amazing. So uh, like exactly as you say, he's about that structure and that rhythm. And then the rest of it's for you as the performer to fill in and figure out with your director. But it also gives you a respect for the for the material as well. I remember Matthew saying that same thing. He said, it's all about the rhythm. Like don't put a pause when there's not a pause and take the pause where there is. And obviously it's down to us to kind of make sense of that. It's not just like, you know, playing, you know, if it's like, it's like when someone really feels a song when they play it or when they just sort of play it, it feels different. But like, but it also gives you a respect for the material rather than that thing of like, I'm just going to kind of take this and I might run over that pause and I might actually, I've kind of forgotten that line here. So I'm going to make this a dramatic moment. And actually when you're not meant to pause there, it's sort of like, it gives you a real sort of regimented structure, which you respect because when you, do it you're like oh that works <laughs> you know that that <laughs> that is how it's meant to be and that's how it must be um and that's something really amazing about the rhythm of his writing where you have to you have to adhere for it adhere to it otherwise it doesn't work it's kind of it's almost like even after he's gone it's like that's how it lives on if like you can't do it unless you do it my way you know you can do, <laughs> you could do you could do a version of yours you can do your version within my within my structure kind of thing it's just it's it's brilliant oh yeah he's he's amazing and yeah it's it's a really special play and i'm I'm so excited you've chosen that as your play crush I, I mean like for you like what's this a play about for you like i mean obviously there's the story which is um aston brings home a homeless person davies mm. um back into his 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 london flat um and i suppose we sort of feel like um, Davis is taking advantage of Aston in some way. There seems to be uh, mm. some complicated issues with Aston. And then of course uh, your character Mick returns home and a sort of weird three-way power struggle kind of um, kicks off between the two brothers and this homeless person they brought, um, they brought into their home and they seem to play off against each other. There's all these power dynamics until um, at the end, the sort of brothers decide to stick together and, and, and shun the homeless person. But mm. I, I suppose that's the plot, but like, What's it play about, like for you, as having done it and having read it and having loved it? I think it's about well, like like everything's love. It's like forms of love. I think it's about survival and loyalty, um, and and love and and dependence. I guess I, I think it's about survival in terms of it's it's cold outside and there's three people and two beds and it sort of feels like if you don't have one of those beds, you're gonna die. And I think it's about loyalty because of because of what there's there's a mixture of like uh, they're bound all the characters are sort of bound to each other in a in a way and I think none more than 
than Mick and Aston. And there's this real boiling kind of love and loyalty where I think Mick is so frustrated and hurt by his brother's situation that it's kind of like the crux of so much of his anger and his pain is the damage that is his brother. But, but yeah, and, and there's also that, and there's a sort of, there's a bitterness towards that situation, which kind of sometimes comes out at a bitterness at the fact that he has to look after him and that he wishes that he could do more because he's his big brother. And it's like, this shouldn't be this way. I should, you should be teaching me things. And here I am trying to do this when I've got a business to run. And there's, there's a kind of, there's like a resentment, but there's also an unequivocal love of like, I will never not have your back and I will never not provide for you in the best way that I can. And then the pain when, when it's like, oh, you're going to give my love to someone else. I feel like it feels if as much as there are sort of brotherly, um, brotherly and they're all, and they're all kind of, and they're all men as well. Like there's like brotherly, um, I was trying to think of the other word, sort of the, the, like the familial? Nature, familial, yeah. Love and relationships. I also feel like they have the dynamics of couples as well. Like I love that it's sort of the stages as it's like um, Mick and Aston in a way are married or they're like, they're, they're soulmates. They're like in a deep love. And then when Davies comes in, it's like an affair. But then when Mick allows Davies in so to eventually get back at him, then they become like a sort of old married couple talking about, you know, the, the decor and things like, and what we're going to do <laughs> and the dreams that we had. And they start nipping at each other, like a kind of old, an old husband and wife kind of thing and i i i um i just love i just love the, the the strength of all of the feeling in it there's so much feeling and it's all under the surface and it just it all comes out sideways um but but i guess to go back to your question i think it's about survival and loyalty um and love and and dependence and dependence on each other I think, I mean, that's such a humane reading of the play. Like, it's it's a really moving reading of the play and a really uh, unique one, I think. Like, you know, obviously I've been sort of reading up about this um, ever since you mentioned this is going to be your play crush and um, just kind of, you know, revisiting the play, reading what people... And, you know, not no one I've ever read has said the play's about love. Really? Uh, they've said it's about power, think... it's about domination. <laughs> but now you've said it, like, of course that's what it's about. Like, And that power and domination only comes from that volatility of love, maybe, and that vulnerability of love. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's so much at one point. I think everything's about love. I think it's like love, <laughs> love in all different forms, but genuinely. You're a romantic, kind of, mate, at your heart. But I think it is. I think it's like there's romantic love, there's like paternal love, there's filial love, there's friendship love, there's everything. There's, um, but I, th- I think, yeah, I think for me it's that, it, that, yeah, there's all the power dynamics of it. Is I think I think the reason behind it is this deep yeah is is a deep love is first for his brother is is there's a, there's a kind of an outrage when he first comes in that someone else will be in his in his in his flat and I'm getting sort of given sort of a very mixed centric kind of reading of things but yeah I think it's <laughs> it's because of a commitment and again in that backstory I I mean I remember Matthew said said something that really struck 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 me that I hadn't thought of until he'd said it. It's like, can you imagine you would have known your brother before and after this had happened? You've probably been a very young boy because he's, he's a fair bit older than you. Um, but you would have seen your brother while you were a, a, a boy. And then he would have gone away somewhere that probably wouldn't have been spoken about much. And then he would have come back home and lived at home. As Aston said, I was living up with my mum and he would have been this broken, this broken brother. Like someone would have, altered him in the most brutal way and the more as you get older you find out the means with which he was altered the the frustration that you know that that one could let that happen um the disappointment and then also the fact that he's now kind of makes a very ambitious he's quite a modern contemporary character he wants he wants he wants he wants to he's got kind of material dreams um and he's sort of been shackled by this love it's like oh why did this have to happen to you? Uh, but it's, yeah, I, I, I find he's, he's so hurt. And it, again, it comes all this sort of childish power struggle that comes later on, but it's all out of the pain of like, I think there's such embarrassment that this top dog, this cock of the walk has been made to leave this room by, you know, 
by these people that in sort of societal terms are less than him, by the his disabled brother that he looks after and this homeless man have essentially outwitted me out of my home and disrespected me out of the home that I, that I work so fucking hard to, to make for you. And I know it's not a great home, but it's the best that I can offer. And you've made me leave it. Okay. All right. All right. And it's, there's, I don't know, there's just so much in it. And I can, I can feel it even talking about it. I can feel all of those feelings that, that then he's, but he's also like, he's like a little boy. It's, it's quite childish as well. I think there's, there's something not base is the wrong word, but there's, there's a simple, quite primal, I think, again, the survival element of the play, you know, I, I have to dominate you. I have to dominate you because otherwise I'm going to go hungry and I'm going to die. Like, I think that's as much as, as with Pinter, it's so black and white in certain ways and so gray is that the themes of like life, death, you know, power, like I will have everything. I will have nothing. I will die. I will live. I will love. I will be forever alone are those black and white. But then the, the gray area is that he comes in and in a very childish way goes, right, well, I'm going to tell you everything I know about everything that you don't know because you're just a smelly old man. <laughs> and even the fact that he calls him smelly as well. It's such a hurtful thing. Like it's the yeah, most, yeah. it's the most base answer where he just goes, you stink. You stink. <laughs> you're a robber. You stink. It's so kiddie. It's like, it's yeah. so kiddie, but it's so personal. Um, so yeah, I, so I've kind of gone off on a track, but it's, I just think it's brilliant. I think it's so. I love that thing. It's black and white and grey. Yeah, which is, and I think like it's interesting about the childhood thing, isn't it? Because you know these traumas seem to happen to Aston and Mick in childhood, and I suppose there's a version where they haven't like gotten out of childhood ever. They're sort of like you know adult children in a weird way, just like still in the playground, still like you know captured by that trauma and just unable to move on. And I I love that phrase you used, shackled by love. I feel like. that could be like the definition of Pinter's work. Yeah. <laughs> just this, you're just shackled by love and the agony and pain and ecstasy of that is sort of what he seems to like investigate. Yeah. I, th- I think that's fascinating. Like, you know, in, in his work and in a lot of work, this idea of a predetermined fate and that actually gives, and in the same way that adhering to a rhythm in his play gives you so much freedom to colour that rhythm with whatever interpretation of the character you have. Similarly, I think Mick has decided I'm never not going to be with Aston. I can never not Mm. put him first. And so, and I'm actually really annoyed at that. And those two things can be, those two things can happen at once, that you are my everything. But I also am so frustrated by that, that because I know that, because I know where I'm going to end up, I can. I have completely complete room to ping around and do whatever I like. In the same way that, like, we talked about time with the, the lockdown. If we knew, like, right, you've got four weeks where you do not have to go to work, and then you will be back there in four weeks' time. You probably do all of the things which we haven't done yet. You probably write a masterpiece and paint your flat, and you know, like, clean up and do your tax and do all of those things because you know in four weeks that's that was your window done but as soon as it's open you're kind of like i'll do it tomorrow and i think because (laughs) he mixed like i know that i'm going to i know that i'm going to end up winning for my brother i know that i'm going to end up here and i know that i will never not i will never not have his back i'm going to just have such fun with the way that i you know He's like, he's, it's cat and mouse with Davies as well. Like, I know I'm going to eat you. I have to eat you. Otherwise you'll eat me. So once I know I've got you, I'm going to play with you like mad. Like it's sort of, there's such, yeah, I don't think by knowing an endpoint in a way, it gives you so much room to, it motivates so much, so much within that time because it suddenly gives a beginning and end to time. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'm no, I'm in no way intimidated by your terrifying cat-mouse metaphor there. <laughs> right. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. Suddenly heard Mick for a moment there. I was like, oh, okay, there's the character. He hasn't quite, he hasn't quite left him yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just a very <laughs> angry man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, George Mackay, he's lovely, but he is very angry. He's very, very angry. Very angry. <laughs> Don't cross him about that. Yeah, do not cross him. You think he's a nice guy? No, that man has ridden buses all over London. <laughs> yeah rage yeah <laughs> and so is that depth of feeling uh, and i suppose that sort of real that 
as you said, that black and white and grey sitting next to each other. Is is that why this is your play crush? Is it is it that is that energy underneath it the reason this is your favourite player? Or is there another another thing that talks um, to you? I think I think it's, it's a mixture of like I remember when I first first read this when when the audition came about because I did I did Pinter at school and I I, I loved like we did mountain language um, and my drama teacher Mr Parker um, really he loved Pinter and he loved the um, the kind of clarity of it and then the absurd nature of it too and and so I remember being really excited to read it and then I was blessed with you know with with auditions and stuff at the time for much more for screen reading you know a, a few like a few scripts and, and and things like that and so kind of having getting not used to seeing them because every script's different but kind of uh, attuned to certain kind of rhythms of how a story's told in film or with television it, you know and that's that's a very that's a generalization but you know there, there, there's a bit of a through line sometimes in terms of story structure and things and then this came along I was like what is this what is this this is, I don't know why I'm laughing but I'm laughing so hard over that thing of like even just again the the words of like um he carried his I think he's like he carried his violin case like a papoose you know like, <laughs> no, he had it in a papoose on his back or something like that I'm like what what is this like this is this makes no sense that's it he's like um he, he had a penchant for nuts and then he just lists about seven nuts and goes wouldn't touch a piece of fruitcake <laughs> and it's like okay it's just so bizarre I remember like I just loved it and the and and the sort of and the not knowing but the possibility of it and then as well like you know the, the experience of actually being a part of it was so profound um and so formative and exciting um and humbling that again it's got a special place in my heart but then i think as well the, either in work and in life the it i feel there is i'm ob- not obsessed with but i'm fascinated by the kind of the gray the, the gray area of life that two things that I, as, a, as a kid i think i was quite you know or, or maybe you are you have a like in the pure your pure understanding of the world I think you you have a strong sense of like right and wrong and this and that in some ways, and then the older you get and your experience of the world, it 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 like you still have you're still kind of rooted in those initial thoughts of like this is that, but then you also have an understanding that that is not the case and that is not how things work, and that's that's beautiful and it's strange and it's like it's just that maelstrom of but I think because it's you're rooted in that quite. Like kind of, I guess, quite pure point of view of like you know life, death, love, don't like you know that that when you then get old and relationships like can be complex or you you know you can like want two things at once or be in two places at once or you know that people who were meant a certain thing to you even in like parents or teachers suddenly with things like age or circumstance those things completely change and I don't know I think that Pinter's work that it's that thing that it's but it's kind of black and white and gray I think that's the best way I can describe it that that in between is so murky and colorful and strange but it sits between some like such like it's such strong poles if you know what I mean um and I think that's what I like that's what I like about it yeah, that's amazing, and it's it's amazing. So, you that that Pinter had been introduced to you at school, um, and those drama teachers are so formative, aren't they? I find that whenever mm. we talk to people in the business, really, the, the sort of the heroism of school drama teachers is never celebrated enough. Um, and so, but but was this when this audition came for the of it? Is that the first time you'd read this play? But you yes. were sort of aware of Pinter. Yeah, no, I was I was aware of Pinter, and I I think I'd I think I'd I'd seen the birthday party. I think I'd seen the homecoming, um, and I remember enjoying the the. Um, uh, and I, we'd also watch one for the road, a video of one for the road, um, because again, Mr. Parker loved that thing of if I waggle my fingers like this in front of you, and it's so that gesture being like, what is that? He puts his index finger and his pinky finger out like a kind of rock symbol, just forward and just waggles them, and you're kind of like, then why is this terrifying? I don't. It's so controlling and manipulative and patronizing and dominant but it's just two fingers wiggling and and it's 
that I remember that, and then also the violence later on in that play. I think I think it's that play when he comes in and he's had his tongue cut out, and you're like, oh, this is serious. This is this is a serious <laughs> situation. And and the same thing with mountain language. Like we were doing these lines, like every dog has a name, and sometimes like you know and all this stuff and being like, and then I think we're working at it for a week, and then Mr. Parker going they might not be talking about dogs and <laughs> being like, oh, okay. There's like, you know, <laughs> like metaphors. But like, I don't know. It's just, yeah, I, I I was aware of him. But this, yeah, this was the first time I'd read The Caretaker and it was just those those long those mo- long monologues. Not, I just, I just found them so funny to start with. Um, and again, that, what we were talking about earlier on is without knowing how you're going to do it because that structure is so strong and you read the rhythm of like, you know, line, line, drip, pause, line, line, drip. Like you kind of go, <laughs> oh, I know what this, I know that this is, this will be good. <laughs> and I want to be a part of it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh God, that's amazing to have such a gut reaction to something you've read um, and then actually get a chance to be in. What, what an incredible feeling. Yeah. And- is there like a particular moment in this play? Is it the whole play? Do you have like a favorite scene or a favorite moment? Or is it, you know, again, the whole play sort of does those things for you in various um, ways? Oh, there's so many. There's a, there's a few. I think I, I really love that first bit between, and again, this is a very mixed centric reading, but I love that first. I think it's the opening of the second act between the, um, Davies and Mick. And it's, and that way that he goes, Jenkins. And it's just like, he just sort of separates his name in this kind of horrible, I mean, that's just like my reading of how it would have like been, but like that, that just, it goes, Jen, dot, 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 Kins. And it's so <laughs> threatening. And he, but he keeps asking his name, like, what's your name? Sorry, I didn't hear Jenkins. Ah, Jenkins. And it's like, it's so <laughs> weird. And I remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty terrified. On the know, <laughs> but it, it was, I think just the rhythm of that is so satisfying. Like the nights where it was, when we, when it felt like Tim and I got it and there was so, it was so much fun. It was so funny and so threatening and so mean and so electric. Um, that first bit, it's just masterful writing. And then also those monologues would just have a special place in my heart because I used to run those. And as much as I said, you know, don't get stuck in your ways, I couldn't help myself but run them every day before the show um, um, and would, would like, I went up to the dressing rooms and, and um, ran them with old, wonderful understudies and went through those, all the monologues, ran through as fast as I could and then would go down, uh, you know, the, the play opens with Mick on stage on his own and then Davies and Aston, um and with Tim and Danny would come on stage, you hear them off stage, and then they're on. And the first, the first act is about is about forty minutes before Mick pops on for the last, the last moment. And so I had forty minutes of like where the play had started and the evening had begun, but then it was like forty minutes downtime. And so I just used to go up to the rehearsal room at the top of the old Vic and just, well, I went through all my tongue twisters because the way we played it, he ended up saying them like kind of this machine gun delivery at him, at Davies. Um, on those big monologues. And so I just used to do all these tongue twisters in the, in the Cockney accent and just tongue twister after tongue twister and all these things and sort of bopping around like a sort of boxer in the dressing room. <laughs> and then I'd go up to the top and just start stalking around the dressing room, like the, the rehearsal room. Uh, and then, you'd, you know, you get your five minute call, go down on, and I'd do all of those tongue twisters and then just go, what's the game? <laughs> and, then <laughs> and then have another 15 minutes and I went back to them and every night we'd go back up to the top of the the um, the rehearsal room and just pad round and just roll these things and sort of start trying to get like hyped up and and, and go up the stage and it was just so full of adrenaline all the time. Um, and I was so, so nervous as well. Like it was this nervous energy which kind of became part of the character. And um, yeah, and then we'd go on stage and, it sort of that section then was just like it was like the release of like every night working up to like because that's when it felt like it had fully begun you know like you're in your stride and then we were and also by that point you're kind of near on halfway through the play um so that initial the beginning of act two but then also I think I think that there's I always found it the hardest part of the play but there's the the last sort of splurge from from Mick when he chucks the Buddha at the end and he's playing cat and mouse with him and he's come back in and he's so, I love, there's this terror, terrifying energy where he's sort of decided he's going to get Davies and he knows he has because 
Davies is being chucked out by Aston and it's kind of like, Aston chucked you out? I didn't know he was capable of that. Plus, I think that means he still loves me. Like, okay. Oh no. Oh right. Well, oh well, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get Aston in trouble. Oh no, you tell me all your problems and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just lays a trap. He's just like Davies is just walking around the room and it's as if he's building a trap round him until the point where he goes, Oh god, he's nutty. And then there's this pause and he goes, Who's nutty? And he and he realizes, you know, Davies realizes he's said he's called Aston nutty in front of me. He said, You call him my brother nutty. And it's like this. Oh, God. and it's that shift. And he's suddenly in that sort of vitriolic sort of celebration of like, I am so ready to be so angry at you. I'm just <laughs> going to make you squirm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's, he's doing it in such a nice way until he goes, no, and Davies goes, I'll leave, I'll leave it if that's what you want. And then he picks up this Buddha and he smashes it uh, and he smashes it against the wall and screams, that's what I want. And then he has this really kind of emotional dirge where he completely lets his guard down and goes, I've got all these other things going on. I do this. I don't have to do this. I do this. And you just see the inside of this bloke for a second. He's just let his guard down with this really emotional. You see how how much stress he's under um, and how upset he is by the situation. And he's sort of it's a kind of bit of a it's a beautiful, ugly letting down of his guard of like, this is all my shit. You know, and this is why I am, and this is that. he's sort of in a way kind of going, This is the situation, and it's so <laughs> sad. And then he whoop, holds himself back together, but in a way, that's kind of my favorite bit because you just get for an instant, he lets his guard down, and you sort of see in a moment that that this this guy undo. And again, that's I think the tension of, of life and in Pinter, and if anyone who's sort of holding in how they're feeling or who they are is that there's this sort of tension in the fact that you could go, you know, a day or an, a lifetime or an entire play of kind of just about holding it together. But if it falls, if it cracks, it it shatters, you know. And that tension of like all of that hurt that he's hiding and that he's owning, he it, it cracks for a second and he and he explodes genuinely. Um, he's And he's out of control with it, where he's a master of control. Um, for the whole play up, up to that point. Um, so, yeah, I think the, that beginning and end for Mick is, is my favourite bit. Yeah, man. I mean, I got goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. It's uh, such, again, such an insightful, deep and humane reading uh, of the part and the and the play. And I think, yeah, that was what's so extraordinary about that production you were in is that it really felt like it dug into all that, the, the guts of it you know and all of that stuff that then was covered up and then just in one moment you get to see it it's it's really powerful amazing favorite moment um and i've got a little thing uh, that i'm going to be asking each guest about um talking about all of that real depth and quality of the play about how we think the critics reacted at the time mm. uh so this play was first formed in 1960 um, you might already know this, you might have done your research, but uh, do you know what the critics said? And if not, what do you think the crit- critical response might have been to The Caretaker I, I, back in 1960? I can't remember what it was to The Caretakers. I remember the birthday party because I grew up just across Hammersmith Bridge. It was at the Lyric first, I think. And I think they uh, I, it opened, I think, and it closed a week later or something like that. Yeah, that's it, a, yeah, it lasted a week. It lasted a week and apparently... <laughs> There's a story of like Harold Pinter came in on like, you know, night three or something to watch how it was going. And it was like a pretty empty theatre and he went into the, the circle and then Usher came in and went, do you like, do you, so as he was going in, said, do you, do you have a ticket? And he went, I'm the writer. And they went, oh, poor you. Like, <laughs> I think it was poor you or something like, oh dear. <laughs> you know? And he went and sort of sat and watched his play. But I, I can't remember, I, I don't know what they said about the caretaker. I imagine... Maybe it was a mixed bag. I think perhaps, I don't know by then if he'd sort of got a bit of a reputation and it was therefore lauded or maybe it was taken apart. I don't, I don't know. Well, what's quite interesting is you're absolutely right. The birthday party was like eviscerated, which is kind of funny because obviously it stands now as one of his masterpieces. Yeah. Um, uh, but then what was interesting is when The Caretaker came out, it was, I mean, it was hugely well-reviewed. Mm. Um, the New York Times called it a modern parable of scorn and sorrow and that the work puts the playwright in the front rank. The Daily Mail even said that this was a play and a production which no one who is concerned with the advance of British drama can afford to miss. Wow. Um, 
it's amazing right up and then what was really interesting is kenneth tynan who's obviously you know a bit, a bit of a famous reviewer published uh, in the observer he said with the caretaker which was moved from the arts theater to the duchess theater harold pinch has begun to fulfill the promise that i signally failed to see in the birthday party wow. um so i think like it's interesting that time maybe just you know people could just see that brilliance a little bit more like they weren't ready for it you mm. know Pinter was ahead of his time it seems like um and while yeah he got he got absolutely pounded for for the birthday party suddenly the caretaker was his first big hit and that's the thing that really set him on the path which i suppose you know ended with the 2005 nobel prize for literature you know like I mean, yeah just the most extraordinary writer and i think as you've so eloquently articulated about why he's so extraordinary, because for all of the power games and the pause and the Pinterest thing, you know, what's so remarkable to hearing you talk is like, it's, it's, it's human and it's about love and it's about that pain. Uh, and, and that seems to like really be something that the way he articulates human pain seems to just stick with us, doesn't it? But it through the decades. Yeah. I, I, he's he's amazing like he's absolutely amazing i i don't i don't know i don't know how he does it and i would have been fascinated to sort of see and i'm kind of a bit more mindful in the way that you know even this this lockdown situation you know you always look at moments like that and kind of go if i saw the birthday party would i have thought it was great or would i have thought it was rubbish like what would i have would i have kind of gone you know we're in a moment or like you know the first time you know or even like to, the, the you know the being in the, the this the one of the world wars or something like that the way that we look back on things and in this play you know growing up at that time kind of going wow what would I can you imagine going down into the you know sleeping in the underground during the blitz like what would it have been like and now we're in the middle of you know this is this this global pandemic is you know we're in the middle of another seismic shit or like Brexit we're in the middle of these seismic moments you know trump like oh i mean the world is just there's so full of these kind of crazy crazy happenings um so i i I mean to to kind of i guess to but but kind of linking it back to kind of pin to what i mean is i sort of i just wonder if you know i like i'm trying it's made me more aware sort of things like that and then the kind of the weight that they continue to have of being a bit, what I mean to say is being a bit more aware of just what's going on when you see something or listen to a song or, or something happens in the world, marking it for whatever your opinion is at the time to be a bit like, I've got an inkling. This is really something. Yeah. My friend does that, you know, he does that with um, front pages, like whenever mm. he thinks there's something that is a moment or a seismic, he, he makes sure he gets the papers that day. And yeah, has this store basically of the sort of major, I suppose, world events or things that he felt were important over that time. Yeah. So, you know, as, as a way of marking that. And I also think you're right, you know, like the caretaker does seem to be a moment, you know, it, it mm. like really changed theatre. You know, in the decade previously, it was like Rattigan, Agatha Christie, Noel Coward. I mean, wait for Godot premiered in 55, look back in anger in 57. So there's this yeah. like grumbling, rumbling change coming. But then, from 1960 onwards, you then get like Rosencrantz and Gilson are dead. You get a four night come. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? The homecoming, obviously raisin in the sun, yeah. a day in the death of Joe egg. Like it feels like there's a before the caretaker and an after the caretaker in a way. Mm. Um, and, and, and the way you talk about it to me, suddenly I realize why, you know, it, it's such a watershed moment. But also I wonder like as well, you know, with Harold Pinter not being with us anymore and things like, I wonder, how whether the brilliant whether whether that's a and not to sort of it doesn't change his his genius in any way but i wonder how kind of conscious what his reaction would have been when he wrote the birthday party whether he was like i'm going to shake up the world of theater or if this is like <laughs> i'm going to do something that hasn't been done what hasn't been done i'm going to do i'm going to give a menace to a player i'm going to give a structure to a player i'm going to tell a story i'm going to find that this you know perhaps did he strike gold and went this hasn't been told like this before, or was this just the way he told stories? Like I, I find that really fascinating as well. The, and I guess there is no answer unless you were to sort of speak to those people, but whether they were, whether they were conscious of what they were doing or conscious of what they were attempting to do, or they just did it. And I, I, in a way, I feel like maybe it's just the latter when people just do stuff and then it's received in a certain way. It's that kind of magical moment where it's like 
something becomes what it is because of the meeting of those two things of someone just doing it and someone just taking it like that kind of moment where something clicks to make sense rather than Pinter being like, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make up, <laughs> you know, something amazing now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause basically mm-hmm. before every production, I sit down and go, okay, so I'm going to redefine British theater here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it hasn't worked so far. So maybe <laughs> I should be doing the Pinter version. The Pinter version. Just, 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 just throw it at the wall. Well, maybe he did though. Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder. I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds like it was all fluke to me. I think, yeah, that's... yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, just yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. just stick a pause in, you know, like it's easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh yeah, Pinter, use the pause, mate. Well done. Um, yes, God, that's amazing. Um, that's really, that's really brilliant, George. I mean, thank you so much. I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. You've been very generous. Yeah, at all, at all. It's absolutely amazing um, to hear you talk about a play in such depth um and insight and humanity it's it's really amazing thanks thanks so much for sharing that no thanks um, for having me like it's it was such a pleasure to read it again it was really lovely to talk about it and it, yeah means oh, that's, oh good oh, i'm really happy um uh, and i got one little final question uh to, to give you like uh, do you have a, a guilty pleasure when it comes to theater and this mainly comes down to my love of les mis uh, and my obsession with playing it very loudly in the house. <laughs> To, to my partner's distress um and so it always makes me wonder uh, i have the same with joseph and technicolor dreamcoat and obviously uh, my name's joe and as a kid i was convinced yeah. that it was basically about me and i'd be setting the slaves free and it was gonna be really <laughs> um again didn't happen um and it, it was in fact weirdly joseph was the first player that i was ever in um as really? a kid oh yeah when 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 oh George. but who did you play in joseph i was reuben right you got a brother Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, See, that's I, how it led to the caretaker. I just do things about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's big game, mate. I, I went for Joseph. I went for the brothers. I got nothing. I, I In the end, I was a fan bearer to Pharaoh, uh, uh-huh. you know, which only looking back on do I understand that that was like, you know, the competition winner. Like they were like, you know, here's the sympathy prize. <laughs> no, well, Pharaoh had the best song. I remember like, oh, I've man. always liked kind of big, you know, kind of quite out there sort of performances like we watched um moulin rouge the other night and, oh, fantastic. Um, you know and it but it's also like john legazamo is just brilliant like his to, to lose the track and then in, in his tibble in romeo and juliet it's just so big like it, he's so big <laughs> and it, i um I, I i one of my i think the first school play i did i was um uh i was the smallest i was really little until i was about 17 like the, the smallest in the year um and just a late bloomer and just I was, was really little. And, um, and so, I mean, I was eight when we did Bugsy Malone, but I was a very small eight year old and, um, <laughs> and I had three parts, um, all of which got knocked out. <laughs> and that was what I was really excited by that. I was Angelo and Fat Sam's gang. And then I was um, a policeman and I got hit on the head um, by a, a baseball bat. And then I was the, the smallest boxer who got knocked out by the biggest boxer. Uh, um, but guilty pleasures, I don't know, um, in theatre. Um, I mean, it's unfair calling them guilty. Like, the, all these shows are actually amazing. I shouldn't really call them guilty pleasures. But uh, for some reason, I, 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 hold, I hold them slightly shamefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when, yeah. And I love these plays, which is silly. Because no, but they're thing- totally brilliant and make me happy. Um, I'm just trying to think. Um, I, don't, I don't... Like, see, I don't have a guilty pleasure because I think I'm quite proud of everything I like. That's the healthy response. If there's anything healthy response. it makes me it makes me think of actually my my dad, you know, loving a um loving a musical is you've never seen a man get so emotional um when we we went to see Dream Girls. He loves Dream Girls. Um and I sort of I love Dream Girls because of him, but like his his reaction to dream girls is and the amount of emotion um was like that sort of i think constitutes a guilty pleasure that if i can just sort I mean, of rub off and have some of that um, definitely i mean i'm yeah. gonna get on with your dad clearly because yeah. he's a man of taste and i like that um, <laughs> yeah amazing well george mckay thank you so much for being the first ever play crush oh, um, you're a total hero and absolutely amazing to hear you talk about an absolutely incredible play Oh, well, no, um, thank you. Like, thanks for talking about it. I'm just was so pleased to read. Yeah, anyone, anyone who hasn't read it, you should read it. It's great. Um, so, so thank you for for having me on this. Oh, mate, a total pleasure. A total pleasure.
George Mackay there, everyone. What an incredible dude. I knew George would be a great first guest because he is so charismatic and interesting and has had such a brilliant career. But hearing him talk about The Caretaker was even better than I'd hoped. I was blown away by his interpretation of the play. His ability to find that level of humanity and pain and love in the script is definitely one of the reasons he is such an electric actor to watch on stage and screen. I loved hearing about his introduction to Pinter at school and why this play was his play crush. Why people choose the plays they do is definitely one of the most interesting things about this project. I also just want to take a moment to thank the incredible Isabel Waller-Bridge for the Play Crush jingle. Isabel is an extraordinary musician and composer for film and theatre. I feel so lucky to have a theme tune written by her. Thanks, Izzo. So, I hope everyone enjoyed episode one and hopefully see you all next time. Go gently and go safely, everyone. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Elliott Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who supported us through this difficult time. 